Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Wilder Podcast. I'm joined here today by my wife, Chloe. Hi, Tom. <laughs> That's an in-joke, isn't it? Yeah. I think yeah. The last episode. I'm sure people will be really, really keen on that at the start. That's really funny. No one cares. No. Not even remembers from the last episode no. where I said about that. Just, let's just get on with the intro. Okay. Welcome, listener. If you're new to the podcast, this podcast is all about covering topics that are particularly interesting to us as a family. We've recently moved to a Monmouthshire, say recently, almost a year now. Moved to Monmouthshire on an 80-acre farm. We're looking to restore nature here and talk to some fascinating, interesting guests. And this week, again, is no exception. Cover topics like generative agriculture, rewilding, nature restoration, sustainability, ecopreneurship, and more. It's just a very holistic and broad church. So I'm really glad that you found the podcast. Chloe, how are you? I'm very well. And I am really excited about today's episode because I think it's a really wonderful and in-depth reflection on an animal that a lot of us will have been aware of and maybe heard some myths and stories about, but perhaps not fully appreciated the function they play and the problems and possibilities of coexisting alongside them. Bring back the boar. Bring back the boar. But before we get in that, uh, is uh tradition should we say for the podcast where we give a little brief update as to what's going on here absolutely now it does feel like things have slowed down a little bit trust me that is not the case there's a lot of planning going on for our volunteers day coming up which is really really exciting we'll update everybody on that probably next episode or so when we've actually done some planning (laughs) we're all over this it's gonna be great but one thing to mention is that our planning permission is going through as we speak and there's lots of visits happening and one thing that i didn't even know was a thing we were invited by the local, they'd be called parish councils, but local community council to go and listen to them chat about our planning permission. And I know, seeing as they invited us, I thought I'd go and say hello. I had no idea what to expect. I didn't want to wear. Do I go super smart? Do I not go super smart? Are they going to be friendly or stand off? So I thought as it's the community and as we knew, I thought it'd be worth just going to pop my head around and say hello. Now, you know, it's going to be good when it's hosted in a local pub. Absolutely. It, I mean, I was sold at that point, to be honest. There's a little roaring fire happening in the corner and I arrived and it was just full. I say full. There were six. They're looking for more. So anyone in the local area, if you want to be a community councillor, please look them up with the White Castle Community Council. But they were really welcoming. And not only did they give me an opportunity to talk about what we're trying to do at the Grange Project, which was great, but actually I stuck around for another hour where they went through the minutes of the meeting very professionally, but also with this nice feeling of true care about each topic that was covered some of it was trivia some of it was important but every single step was gone through seriously and respectfully to ensure that they were doing best by their community and having never experienced something like that and being genuinely on the more cynical side of life i didn't really think that that was something that happened but it does it happens in white castle it was a privilege to be part of it and it was great to see and you came back full of enthusiasm and goodwill i think and For me, community is absolutely a cornerstone for how we're going to be living moving forward and for this project. So it was so fantastic to be part of a conversation or for you to be part of a conversation that was really reflected that. And yeah, hopefully in the future we can kind of get more involved. Yeah, I did. To be honest, I actually left before they spoke about our planning permission. I just didn't want to put, I don't have that, you know, looking at them as we're talking about our stuff. Maybe that was not the right way (laughs) attitude to have and maybe I could have been there. But you're not allowed to influence at that stage anyway. So I just hope that, well, we'll find out in a few days as to what they think. Right, uh, is that it? Should we move on to this chat? It is quite a good one. Lots to cover. And, and Chloe, would you like to kind of pick out some of the key conversations that we have throughout it? Absolutely. So 
this is it's kind of an interesting story because I think you found Chantelle Lyons, who's the author of the fantastic Groundbreakers, The Return of Britain's Wild Boar, on LinkedIn. Yeah, I know. Well, she's been doing some fantastic PR around it, to be honest, and even with Rewilding Britain and other places as well. So, yeah, I think I saw it. I mean, I'm a, su- a sucker for decent marketing. And I like the design <laughs> of the book. So I was like, they know what they're doing. So I'm going to have a chat to Chantelle. And she quickly got back to me. We had a chat. Turns out, with a good arm, you could have thrown a stone to where we lived in the forest and between where she was spending her time doing the research for this book. So we spent a lot of time in similar woods doing similar things. So I just is a match made in heaven, really. Absolutely. And that's why one of the things I really loved about the book is the echoes I had to our previous life of tromping through the forest. And obviously, my lovely mother felt that there were similar echoes because unbeknownst to her that we had this interview lined up, she ordered a copy of Chantal's book and delivered it to the house. So, which was lucky. Which is very lucky because it meant that I could consume it at my leisure prior to the conversation with Chantal. And I think this interview is a fantastic summary of a lot of the kind of key debates and discussions that she covers in the book in terms of why the wild boar left, why they've come back, the ecological role they play, the challenges that they're presented to human, why we're so scared of them really, and what the future of the UK could look like and living alongside wild boar. So I think this is a great story, really. It's a, it's a story of wild boar and our relationship alongside them. Chantel, welcome to the Wilder podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. And also it's, it's just for viewers content, it's Sunday evening, uh, just gone eight o'clock in the evening. So thank you very much for giving us your very limited personal time for this and we'll go into why it's limited at the moment in a second but would you mind introducing yourself a bit about your background and how you find yourself being the author of such an amazing book thanks yeah um so i've got a bit of a mixed background i best describe myself i suppose as a writer and a science communicator so by day i work for a creative communications consultancy and we work in science communications mainly in sustainable fishing and marine conservation and then the other part of my life is writing and recently in the last few years that writing has focused completely on the wild boar i came to this topic again in a really zigzaggy way in a way i did a environmental social science masters at ucl in london in 2014 and I needed a dissertation topic that I would be able to write 15,000 words on. So I went to the Forest Dean to speak to people there about what it was like to live with wild boar because I couldn't find any research that had been done on that before in terms of what it was like for these people to be living alongside, living alongside wild boar from a social science point of view, essentially. And what I found there just blew my mind. I kept thinking, you know, why are people not paying attention more to what is happening here in the Forest of Dean? This is incredible from an ecological and a social point of view. So I came away thinking, oh, I'm sure some established writer is going to come along soon and write a book about the return of wild boar to Britain and, you know, what's been going on in the Forest of Dean. But years and years went by and nothing happened. It just felt like such a missed opportunity to celebrate and talk about what happened when wild boar came back and what that means for our landscapes and our ecosystems and for us as well. Eventually in 2021, I sent a very short, quite flimsy, tentative proposal to an editor at Bloomsbury and he really loved it and it just went from there and I suddenly found myself with a contract to write this book and I swiftly up sticks from where I was living and moved to the Forest of Dean so I could really immerse myself in the world of the boar and you know be someone living there and experiencing life with them myself as well. The culture of the Forest of Dean which we'll discuss later which is quite a unique 
culture every everywhere has its own unique um, and listeners will know that Chloe and I are from Forest of well, from we, we moved to the Forest of Dean 10 years ago and actually very very close to where you moved to and spent some time in similar places as well which which we'll cover. I guess I just want to start with some appreciation because since we've begun this journey into rewilding and ecology like I've read quite a lot of conservation and books by naturalists and what I really loved about your book is how a lot of the books I've read have been very much privileging the story of the wildlife which is obviously as it should be and I feel like they're always informative and I always learn something from them but what I loved about what how you're writing is that you weave the human stories in throughout and your story and your passion for the ball it just came to on every page and it made it so engaging and all the little kind of people that you met along the way you painted such a kind of evocative pictures of the time you spent with them and impact they had and how they then weave in with all the other story of the wild boar alongside so I just wanted to say thank you thank you <laughs> I think uh, that is a lovely really lovely compliment to hear <laughs> uh, Chloe quite literally hasn't been able to put that book down so there we go <laughs> of course all links will be in the show notes but not to put you on the spot but talking about evocativeness the whole point of this topic is to, is to learn more and educate ourselves and the listeners on wild boar. So it feels like, unless you tell me otherwise, it's sensible to start at the beginning. So is, could you give us a very potted history of mm. <laughs> of the wild boar in the UK? I certainly can give you a potted history. Um, they died out in Britain probably around 700 years ago. I say probably as there are lots of different sources saying, oh, they died out 300 years ago, which is obviously a really big gap. Um, but it seems that probably the since the 1300s the times that wild boar have been sighted or recorded in britain was when wealthy people had imported them from mainland europe to their hunting estates because wild boar mm. never died out in mainland europe but certainly it seems that the british wild boar the one that we'd had here for thousands of years died out around the end of the 1300s due to a combination of habitat loss and overhunting. And then in the 1980s, farmers began to import them from farms in mainland Europe because, again, there is a long history of farming, keeping wild boar captive and farming them in mainland Europe. And uh, there was a bit of a wild boar meat bubble. A lot of farmers thought, oh, yes, it's going to be a great new way to make money. A bit like that ostrich meat bubble I think we have in the 90s. <laughs> but in around 1987 is when we, as far as we know, that was the date of the year of the first escape of wild boar. It was when the great storm took place and brought mm -hmm. a tree down on a fence and the wild boar got out that way in a farm in Kent. And since then, there have been other escapes. There have also been illegal releases. And I say illegal because wild boar are listed under the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. So any action that someone takes to release a wild boar into the wild is illegal. Populations began to bloom from those escapes and those illegal releases. So that was in Kent and East Sussex, in Devon, in Dorset, in the Forest of Dean, and then also some spots in Scotland, including Lacaba and uh, and Galloway. That is how they came to be. Just that is fascinating to me because we moved to the Forest of Dean, like I said, 10 years ago, and I didn't know any of that history. I just assumed, stupidly, because I didn't bother researching any of it, but they just had been overhunted, overhunted down to the Forest of Dean, and that was just the last bastion. I didn't know they were kind of essentially extinct and then brought back, and I didn't know the whole backstory to it. But they do hold, or did hold, and probably do, mythical status within the Forest of Dean and within true foresters when you talk to them about it. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to that. Before we step into myth and legends and dispel some of them, maybe, could you quickly or not quickly as long as you want touch upon the role they play in the ecosystem is it 
good? Is it useful to have them around? Or actually, are they a complete waste of time and we should not worry about it? <laughs> yeah, I'll try and uh, keep it as concise as possible because there's such a variety of ways in which wild boar contribute to our ecosystems. Obviously, they are a native species. All our other wildlife was used to having them around and sort of adapted to having them around and sort of took advantage of what the wild boar did. So the really key way that wild boar affects sort of ecosystems is through the act of rooting, which is how they forage. It's where they turn over the earth and dig quite far down sometimes. And in that, the process of digging through the earth and searching for plants and grubs and fungi and other delicious things, they <laughs> mix the different layers of the soil and the leaf litters together. And in doing that, they do something that no other animal among our wildlife can do. I mean, badgers do root a bit, but they don't dig so extensively. They don't dig so f as far down as the wild boar do. So wild boar perform a really unique role in that sense. And by mixing up the soil like that, by breaking it open, they are doing all kinds of things. I mean, they're very good at clearing bracken. They open up the seed banks, so they allow a much greater diversity of plants to grow. Obviously, they can often enhance the fertility of the soil by sort of rooting through it. When they create these sort of these bare patches of rooted soil, obviously it will grow over. But before that, that bare soil is really important to invertebrates such as ground nesting bees and wasps. That, that bare soil also helps generate new microclimates and microhabitats. So the micro, you know, see, because the bare soil heats up faster than the surrounding plant life. So that does all kinds of tiny things, you know, things to the surrounding environment that we as humans wouldn't notice, but that invertebrates really do. So it's really important to a variety of invertebrates. And then in turn, really useful to birds who love to forage for invertebrates in those rootings. I mean, I'm sure you probably have heard the by now quite well used sort of adage that robins follow gardeners around because we are essentially pretending to be wild boar. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's certainly, it's definitely true. I've seen birds sort of fluttering in the canopy in the woods above where the boar are foraging, you know, just waiting to go down and pick over what's left in those rootings. And the boar are very good at clearing the snow as well. And uh, there's a great photo I've seen of a robin sort of waiting patiently in front of the boar to sort of go and pick at the rootings uh, that they'd broken through the snow to. And then going back to plants, I mean, um, things like oaks and beeches grow really nicely in the soil that the boar have sort of rooted up. Then there are other really important functions. So they create wallows. You know, I mean, a pig, We, I think we all know that pigs love a good mud wallow. Wild boar are absolutely the same. They have, you know, and pigs, of course, are wild boar, but just domesticated. But um, wild boar do not have sweat glands. So it's essential that they do wallow even in winter. But obviously it's especially important in summer. And the act of wallowing, it creates these lovely, wet, muddy, watery spots in the woods. And... Uh, those muddy spots, those wallows, become really important habitat for a variety of aquatic organisms, from dragonflies to tiny fish, uh, even fr and frogs and other animals like that. Um, and in the summer, particularly in times of drought, those wallows are going to stay wetter for longer. So they are really, really important. In 2022, I had a trail camera in front of a wallow, and I could just see how important it was to the local wildlife because it was like Piccadilly Circus for all the forest animals, <laughs> essentially, those sort of, especially in July 2022. I think that's where Chloe told me a story from the book. And again, this is the, an example of you weaving it in that you had that trail camera up and 
the sorry, I'm stealing your story, Chloe. Yeah. Well, it's not. I right, Shanta. I was it's your story <laughs> technically, but, but the Chloe told me this yesterday. You know, it was, it was super hot, super dry. There was no puddles or areas that wildlife could hydrate themselves or whatever they wanted to do to it until, and this wallow was one of the last bastions. And then you caught on camera, was it a young family came with, with yeah. bottles of water to try and fill it? It was amazing. And it was this, yeah, this, this, this mum and dad and their three children. And they were clearly there on holiday and they were doing things like building forts and things like that. And uh, just sort of over several days, they kept coming back to that wallow. But they did, um, as it was starting to finally dry out because, you know, obviously it was so hot and dry. They brought just lots and lots of bottles of water um, and it was amazing. And they just sort of kept pouring it in. And then the boar with the night, the night after visiting and obviously sort of just torpedoing into that lovely muddy wallow. <laughs> And it, yeah, so I did feel so grateful to them. And, you know, I do hope one day one of them will pick up the book and recognize their family in there. But it was very entertaining watching it. <laughs> it was a weird, obviously, it's a weird voyeuristic thing as well. And the family was aware of the camera and they, you know, the guy, the husband starts said, oh, no, I think it only goes on at night. <laughs> that is not the case. It was also recording them during the day. I do treasure that memory and I feel very grateful to them. Just taking the slight step back, just uh, I think for people that, don't know what wild boar can do in the effect mm. of disturbance to the ground it's, it's just worth probably underlining that it is yeah. unbelievably impressive when you when you we've had it where we used to live you know you, you go to sleep one night and you look out over a, a field maybe or whatever it was you wake up in the morning you think that the seventh shock army had driven their tanks through the field it is so impressive in what they can do it in a night and you can just imagine all the good things you've just described you know, that being done to the field in this example I've just been giving, but you've got all the, all obviously throughout the whole of the woods and also, you know, the, the, the grass verges on, on the roads. And half the time you don't, you won't realize it unless you're from the forest. You know, won't know what it is. You'll think it maybe it's people parking their cars on there, but the role that they're doing, they do such a powerful thing. I've got to say, when you go running around the forest of Dean, you have to you just keep your eyes a little more vigilant for those. I mean, one example for me, at least anyway, there's a wallow that is just, basically down one of the big hills halfway down it and you're going down it at quite a pace and and you know there's a good few couple of times where i almost kind of slid into it because it's so muddy around there as well so you kind of you're running past it and you, you slip and slide and i almost at one point it was so deep i almost felt like i dig out a little root in or a trench out for any animals that may have fell into it i'm sure and then i realized that nature's probably cleverer than i am but <laughs> It's so really funny. I mean, of all the impacts that the boar have on people, I have to say falling into one of their wallows is is a new one for me. That's pretty impressive because I have spoken to a lot of people. <laughs> oh, I've got more. I've got like, so you know, many more. Now, yeah. People <laughs> are impacted by the boar. You know, <laughs> add that to the risk assessment. So before we move on to myth busting around wild boar, is there anything else you'd like to add to the on the ecological side? Yes, absolutely. The final really important thing about wild boar is their dung a lot of people focus on what they're eating but fewer people mm -hmm. focus on what is coming out the other end and their dung is obviously brilliant for dung beetles the door beetles that i'm sure you're used to seeing in the forest of dean those lovely big black shiny shiny guys they just go wild for boar poo. I can I just see them swarming over the boar poo in the summer. So it's really great for dung beetles, and that in turn is great for all of the animals, all the bats and the birds that eat dung beetles. But in that dung, you have a huge, you often find a huge number of spores of mycorrhizal fungi, 
And as I'm sure a lot of us know by now, thanks to books like what is uh, Merlin Sheldrake's book, for example, Entangled Life, I think that's it. You know, we know that mycorrhizal fungi is really essential to the thriving of woodland because those fungi bind to the roots of trees and help them access resources they wouldn't otherwise be able to get. But of course, that fungi itself needs to reproduce. It needs to disperse through the landscape. And wild boar are the perfect taxi for that. They are uberbore. They, while they're rooting through the soil, they are ingesting those spores. They may also be eating the fungi itself. I mean, it's been found that some truffles put out a scent that attracts wild boar because clearly they have worked out in their own way through evolution that wild boar are very good at dispersing their spores. So then the wild boar go off. They they roam very far. Again, as I mentioned, badgers earlier do a bit of rooting, but they don't roam nearly as far as wild boar do. So the wild boar go off. Obviously, the you know what they've eaten passes through their digestive tract, and potentially many miles away, they are then pooing, and those spores have been transported to somewhere else. And obviously, those spores are themselves surrounded by this lovely nutrient powerhouse of of all you know, all the good stuff that's in that dung. So, if you then you know have young trees growing around that, around that area, they've been gifted this amazing start in life through the dung of the wild boar. And there is also some evidence that uh, microinvertebrates, such as uh, orobatid mites, which are a type of soil mite, can survive passage through the digestive system of these animals, which would also be amazing. You know, it would be amazing the fact that potentially these are agon animals, which are very slow to disperse through the landscape. They are also being helped to sort of reach new places, potentially degraded habitat as well, such as ex-farmland by the wild boar. So wild boar could be hugely important to rewilding and the regeneration of woodland in this country. And that is the sort of, for me, the first, you know, the final piece of the puzzle when it comes to the ecological effects of the wild boar. There's a lovely section in your book where you talk about your hunt for wild boar poo and how there's an image of you in your kitchen, I think, with like a seal and some alcohol solution trying to like unpick the mysteries of the wild boar poo, which is, uh, again, was quite, I ran quite entertaining as I, as I was reading the book. I mean, given all these fantastic ecological benefits, why does not every woodland in the UK sign up to having all of these wild boar? I guess there's the, the thing we've kind of touched on is some of the, myths or some of the kind of challenges of coexisting with wild boar and, and I wonder kind of what you've discovered about that during during your research. Yeah I mean as I say I think in the introduction of the book the boar metaphorically are exposing their rooting through and exposing all our deepest beliefs about wildlife about the proper place of wildlife how wildlife should comport itself wildlife essentially for us should be like deer as soon as a deer sees us it runs away and that's what we always expect so when a wild bull doesn't do that then it's a shock to us and it's uh it's terror it's scary for some people so yes yeah, so and then, and then the other i guess the other myth apart from the fears that people have around how, what the wild bull will do to them which we should definitely go into the other thing is this idea of the wild bull causing damage to woodland and which is such a weird thing because obviously our woodlands they lived with wild boar for thousands and thousands of years, and yet suddenly a few hundred years passes and we are acting like, oh my God, will no one think of the woodlands? I think that's really interesting because I think there's a point you make in the book about how, particularly in the Forest of Dean, there's a sort of sense of home or or a garden that extends perhaps beyond someone's boundary into the forest itself. And then when people go for their daily walk and they see some of the disturbance by the ball or or have a sense of their presence it almost feels like they're kind of invading their space that they would consider their under their ownership and I thought that was kind of really interesting I hadn't considered that point before and I guess from our perspective there was 
some frustrations at times when particularly at the point where we were trying to sell our house which was kind of it was feels ideally that we're supposed to look beautiful and green for horses to be grazing in and in fact then ended up looking like kind of a plowed field by the antics of the ball I think the first night I went out and tried to like put all the divots in and after the second night we just gave up but it was it was interesting how it felt I don't think I felt scared but I definitely felt frustrated because we were trying to portray something and we were worried about how people would feel about the disturbance that had been created in the fields I just think that all comes from just lack of understanding I mean trying to sell a house with a field uh, you know, there's, there is something that people expect to see when they arrive. But I just think back to when we first moved to the forest, pretty much within the first couple of conversations with new people, uh, foresters, they will bring up the wild boar and they'll say, oh, have you seen the boar yet? And we're like, no, we haven't seen the boar yet. Or chow, they'll eat your dog and they'll chase you out. I'll chase you out of the woods. And I'm not, this is not an exaggeration. This is pretty much every during the you know welcome to the area conversation this is what came up so i was ready to go into the woods with a pointy stick to defend myself and then i got to know them and it was just like sharing the space with other with other wild animals although probably is worth giving one last funny story at the time before i'd fully understood a respected wild boar i thought it'd be really good to go into the deepest bit of the woods where no one goes and build a den because I'm a, I'm a big kid, basically. And again, not understanding the way Bell War, you know, where they prefer to spend their time during the day and what they prefer to do. I just thought, I'm in charge. I'm going into the middle of the woods. Job done. So I start building this den. And a few days later, I decided it's a great idea to show Chloe and Chloe's sister and I think fiance at the time or, or husband uh, with our dogs this den. So we start chomping into the middle of the woods from the track. And our dogs are running around like they, they would do. And the next thing you hear is barking and yapping and, and the dogs running off in a different direction. And it's because we were stupid. It's because we went into where the wild boar lived. And the wild boar said, excuse me, look, I've left the rest of the woods for you. You've got your tracks. I, I'm living in the deepest, darkest bit because I want to be left alone during the day. And would you mind not being here? To which we replied as quickly as we could. Yes, you're absolutely right. Sorry, sir, we'll do it again. <laughs> I mean, I love the way you've told that story as well and sort of the human way of telling that story and that some people might call that anthropomorphism, but that is a translated way of us imagining probably quite accurately how a wild boar would feel in that situation. So thank you very much for sharing that story. And how, Yeah, and how stupid, genuinely how silly I felt. Like it was a, I should have known better. Right? If I'd thought about it or spent time about it, and this probably goes into the conversation we had offline before we came into the interview around i think your belief that obviously the boar are doing such an important role to rewild the wood or the areas that they are at but actually they have a role in the rewilding of humans and i don't suppose you could speak to that a little bit please mm. yeah well that really gets to the heart of what i found when i went there in 2014 i went there thinking well what i've read in the papers it's probably quite an exaggeration you know journalists are trying to sell papers you know all these stories about people's dogs being ripped apart and people being chased it's all just probably hot air and when i went there i spoke to a real mix of people some people who loved having the ball around who found them thrilling to be around and then people who found them terrifying or hated them and there were i did speak to one person whose dogs had genuinely been gored had fortunately survived but obviously no one wants that obviously it must have been hugely traumatic and then there were people who were so terrified of the ball they worried that they might be eaten alive if they ever fell in the forest one day and couldn't get away <laughs> the fear was that much and then there were horse riders and obviously horse riding is an interesting one because a lot of horses are intrinsically afraid of pigs and wild boar 
So it's a very practical concern, you know, that you are riding in the woods one day and your horse gets a whiff of wild boar or it starts freaking out. And obviously there is a real safety issue there. And there was one rider I spoke to whose sort of head was in her hands and she was almost on the verge of crying. And so there was a much deeper, deeper well of emotion in the forest than I expected. But what was really fascinating was that whether people hated or loved the boar, they all described in their own way this sense this this heightened sense of awareness that they now had towards wild boar in a way they never had before they talked about all the things that they would have to think about or do before they went out into the woods you know put bells on their dog or put their dog on a leash and they wouldn't have done that before or they might avoid certain parts of the forest that were sort of towards the summer when the bracken is growing really high they would decide okay i think the bracken's too high now in that patch i'm going to avoid it because there could be wild boar in there and that is something that we are just not used to doing in this country. No one in this country, apart from places like the Forestine, has to think before they go out, oh, what should I do just in case I come across this, this animal that I don't want to get in the way of this animal? And that is essentially at the end of this, this dissertation in 2014, I concluded that in a sense, the wild boar are rewilding us as well. They are gifting us, or some people might call it a gift, some people might not giving us this mindset that no one in this country has had for centuries. And that for me was just miraculous. And that was what blew my mind and made me think, you know, look, everyone, look at what is happening here in this. Because in the UK, we are very anomalous compared to the rest of the world. Because so in most of the countries, most of the people in the world have to deal with much bigger you know, I, I would say much more dangerous animals than wild boar. But obviously, baby steps, I think wild boar do count as a baby step for us, but one that still seems like a very big step for a lot of people. And since I've left the forest scene and then come back, I mean, it's now 10 years ago that I did that original research. I caught up with a lot of people who I interviewed at that time 10 years ago. And some people, their feelings had changed. Some people, it's say the same. I mean, there was one woman who was really, really terrified of the boar to the point that she thought, they might eat her alive if they got a chance but she is not afraid of them anymore because they always run away if she sees them and she shouts at them so she's adapted and she still doesn't like camping around but she has adapted and it does seem that like, i don't know if, if you if you two feel the same but uh, certainly while people do still talk about the wild war and have their gripes talk about the overturned bins in cinderford and things like that <laughs> it does seem less of an issue these days and obviously that's partly related to the numbers being a bit lower but i do also think because the numbers actually are very similar to when now compared to when i was there in 2014 there's not that much difference in it um so i think it really is a case of time and familiarity yeah all I can say, really, if anyone's listening to this and thinking, oh, it's completely reasonable to be absolutely petrified. No, of course it is. Everyone is welcome to their own opinion. So, uh, so I'm not trying to belittle them. But all I can say from our experience of being there for how many years, Chloe? Five years? Six years? Longer? You know, I went out dog walking, running every day, even did an event where I ran four, four miles every four hours for 48 hours straight through the night, running in two, you know, two o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, all the way through and different times and bumping into little families of wild boar and it is you know look it gets your heart rate going i'm not going to suggest it doesn't but i didn't have any issues with it and i think you know when we chloe rode horses we were very, either very fortunate or it just wasn't as big as a concern as maybe some people would, might like you to think so i know I, I really do encourage people not to be concerned and and go and go and you know experience spending time in places where they are and see if it feels different for them as well any additional myths? Would you like to go back to any of these myths that you've come across that maybe just aren't quite as true as, as people might lead you to believe? 
Yeah, I think it's worth dwelling on it. I think for starters, when if you go to the forest and people tell you, oh, you're going to be chased, watch out. I mean, I think people enjoy imparting that kind of warning, you know, it's fun. It's like, oh, watch out, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, we love the gory, we love the gory details, and, you know, we, so it's exciting and it's fun to sort of scare people like that or just to, you get caught up in stories. And I do think a lot of the claims of boar chasing people derive from this rumor mill, feeding people with expectations that if they happen to see a boar and if that boar does in any way step towards them, then having heard previously that boar chase people, their mind is instantly going to go to overdrive and say, oh my God, that boar is coming towards you. Clearly it has malicious intent. You must run away right now. <laughs> and then there we go. We keep sort of feeding the rumor mill of, oh, I've been chased. And uh, I mean, it's worth noting, of course, a boar run really fast, probably faster than most people. And yet we have not heard of a single case of someone being caught by a boar. So make that what you will. But I think uh, one really important myth to counter is around mother boar and their babies. I mean, sows are very protective of the young and they will sort of, uh, the sounders, which are formed of these uh, related females, each led by a matriarch, they pull their litters. They usually give birth around the same time and they have this sort of crash system. So you might have one boar who's doing the babysitting for like 20 or 25 babies all in one go and they are very protective. They're excellent mothers. But there is this feeling people, you often hear people say, Oh no, I mean, yeah, wild boar usually okay, but if you do see, you know, you've got to be so careful with the mothers. And I mean, certainly with dogs, you absolutely must be. In this country, obviously, you hear all the time about sheep and lambs being attacked, about deer being attacked. So it's completely reasonable that you should warn people to keep their dogs on leads around wild boar, and especially when wild boar have babies. But Certainly my experience was not that as soon as I locked eyes with a mother boar that she was going to attack me. Um, yeah, in the woods where I, well, next to where I lived while I was writing the book, there were these free boar. I called them the trio in the book, these free sows, and they had their babies. And there was this particular, it was June, I think. They had them a little bit later than some of the other boar. But there were quite a few mornings where I'd come upon them. I'd watch them through the bracken. I'd sort of creep after them as they sort of slowly made their way through the forest routing. And then there would always be the inevitable point where one of the sows would realize I was there. And the matriarch would stand to ground and watch me while the others ran away. But then once she was sure they were away, she would run away as well. And that was the case every time. I never felt threatened by them. You could always tell they just wanted to get away as soon as they possibly could. And that is usually what wild boar do. I mean, I've also, um, I flushed up male, lone males, you know, adult, fully grown adult male boar, who again are just like really perturbed that someone has disturbed their sleep. But again, they just run away normally. So I think it's very isolated, the case of people being attacked. And one final thing to say is that, you know, wild boar have been back in parts of the country for around 30 years now. And there have been just two cases of injury to people which is kind of good going, you know, especially compared to the number of dog attacks on people. Yeah, male wild boar, they are, I mean, fully grown adult wild boar, generally they are, they are impressive. When you see them, you're like, wow, you, these are wild animals. They're not, you know, they're not your domesticated pigs you, you see. They are wonderful to look at. And baby boar, am I right in saying humbugs? That's what they're called? Yeah. I mean, come on. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah. And they are cute, to be fair. If you look, anyone sees the videos. Thinking about how you talked about how when you came back in 2001 to the forest, there was a kind of sense of the 
people have learned to live alongside the boar and some of the potency and some of the kind of concerns had, had dropped a little bit. And I guess for me, when I think about an ecosystem, it's about everything being in balance and trying to find what that balance looks like. And I suppose I wonder whether you could speak to a bit around how in the Forest of Dean, they have worked to try and achieve a balance between the forest, the needs of the natural ecosystem and the needes of people and the needs of the boar. Well, Forestry England, who owns and manages most of the land around the Forest of Dean, and therefore they are the ones with the wild boar on their lands the most. So they've been running a culling program from 2008. And they have, for most of that time, also had a target population of 400 wild boar. And they did two years ago just about get to that point. It's now seems to have gone up a bit more by, you know, based on the survey method that they use. But uh, they have, yeah, since 2008 been culling the wild boar. And the two reasons they give for that is to see reduce the amount of friction between wild boar and people. But also they usually say, oh, we think that that's a really good number to get the best, the ecological benefits of the boar without the boar having too much, too great an impact on the forest, which is very fair because wild boar are force of nature. You really only need a few wild boar in a place to make a big, to make a good difference. And in the sort of, well, before we hunted the wild boar to extinction and before we started to massively change, uh, modify the British landscape, you would have this lovely dynamic of all these species, including wild boar, moving through the landscape, constantly being moved on by the threat of predators. So you would get that dynamism in the landscape and that disturbance effect, the wild boar rooting, but the wild boar would root one area, then they'd move on and they wouldn't come back for a while. So that ground would have time to recuperate. And obviously things are a bit different in the Forest of Dean these days. Obviously there aren't any other predators apart from us and cars and dogs. Uh, <laughs> I think those really do count as predators these days. That's what we've got for managing the boar. And uh, it does seem to be that in some parts of the forest, you do get a very high concentration of boar and probably that isn't quite what we used to have in the past, those densities. So definitely there does need to be management of the boar to an extent. Certainly they do need to cull some of them every year, but there's a lot of question marks over whether Forestry England survey method is the right one and whether they really do know how many there are. There could be far fewer, there could be more. I think it's, oh gosh, it's really hard to know. I mean, I certainly don't think that there are more than the, the number they give. I guess it's that interesting thing where it feels a bit like rewilding. It's a bit like a, an art and a science in that you're kind of informed by principles, but sometimes it's just about using kind of intuition a bit and, and kind of judging, well, what, how much disturbance can the land take and how many reports are we getting of people kind of having encounters and how do you, yeah, it sort of feels like it's hard to put like a fixed number, like 400 on it, because it feels like it's such a, yeah, uh, it's in, in, in some ways it's very hard for us as humans, I guess, to judge that um, without the historical legacy of having lived alongside the boar for centuries, like I know that they have done on the continent. Yeah, completely. So I guess from all the learnings you've taken from the time spent in the forest with the boar, talking to people, what would kind of be your hopes about the relationship that we're going to have as a country with the boar moving forward? Yeah, that's a quite a hard question to answer because I'm naturally quite pessimistic. <laughs> my hopes, so I, you know, I do have two futures in my head and in one future, as we have done with the beaver, we become more used to the idea of wild boar. We start to embrace them we become much more ecologically educated about the 
positive impacts of wild boar and understanding why we need wild boar and also other big animals, you know, sort of the fundamental and unique and irreplaceable roles that these animals perform in our ecosystems and the fact that we can't just pick and choose the wildlife we want. And if we are actually serious about restoring nature, we have to have the full gamut of species. We can't just say, oh, let's keep the butterflies and the badgers. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Nature does not work like that. Uh-huh. Obviously, my ideal future would be to have wild boar back everywhere, within reason, of course, in numbers that the land can take. And obviously, that will vary between different habitats, different parts of the country, different settlements, you know, depending on how many people there are. And also, we should be we should hunt them, of course. I think you know, it would they they are a brilliant source of wild, ethical, sustainable protein if there's enough of them, and they are being shot at a sustainable rate. So that would be my ideal future, sort of people enjoying wild boar meat, so a cultural resource, but also people embracing the wildness that wild boar give, the thrill of encountering them, and also the fact that they they do have such an important role to play in restoring our ecosystems. On the more pessimistic side, there is definitely a threat on the horizon, which is African swine fever, which is this virus that started in the factory farm well it started in the pig industry uh, and obviously because of how we factory farm a bit like bird flu it's this virus that is racing through pig populations in asia and europe it's not yet i don't think it's reached western europe yet in terms of sort of france spain italy for example it hasn't reached the uk but the pig industry in the uk is really worried about it defra is really worried about it and defra has pretty much said that they won't consider ever reintroducing wild boar or allowing their reintroduction until ASF is not a threat anymore, which is a really huge ask because scientists have been trying for decades actually and you know, been putting a lot of resources into trying to come up with vaccine for ASF. So until ASF is less of an issue or until we massively reduce the farmed pig population in the UK and massively cut down our pork consumption, we're never going to have official reintroduction or sanctioned reintroduction of wild boar. So the only way it's going to actually happen is if we we have more illegal releases, I suppose, and hunting pressure in other places eases off. Um, because, of course, with, while Forestry England is shooting the boar, uh, lots and lots of private landowners are also shooting them. And essentially every big landowner around the Forest of Dean who has a gun will be shooting the boar or will be giving people permission to shoot the boar on their land. So it's really hard for the wild boar to disperse outside of the Forest of Dean, which is why we haven't, you hear sort of rumours of wild boar popping up in Wales over the border. But really, I think if the people weren't shooting at them by now, you know, sort of almost 30 years later, you'd have really, really thriving populations in places like the Brecon Beacons and similar, I think. Well, that, I mean, that feels like a really exciting note to end on. I, I come <laughs> this vision of a uh, wild boar across the Breckens and how I follow a charity program that's all about trying to plant more trees and create a kind of a different landscape across the Brecon Beacons. And you think what critical role the boar could play in that yeah. process in terms of creating disturbance, exposing the soil, allowing more trees to come through. And yeah, what, what a wonderful asset they would be to rewilding some of that national park. Mm. Right. Well, I think that is it. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. We always give the last thought to the guest. Is there anything you'd like to, or any way you'd like to direct people to if they want to find out more about yourself or obviously the book, anything will be in the show notes. If you'd like to talk about it now, please do. Or if there's any final thoughts before we wrap up. Oh gosh, I want to say all those things, I guess. Um, Yeah, please do read the book, Groundbreakers. And then also, if you enjoy it, leave a review on Amazon afterwards because apparently that really helps to boost books. Uh, Would save me my obsession of literally almost every hour clicking on the Amazon to see if there are any reviews there. But uh, (laughs) I do have a website as well. It's chantalines.uk. 
And I list things such as press and then events that I'll be attending that I will list. I will note the podcast when, when it's out. And then I guess the final note is with Wild Boar. Yeah, do your bit for the Wild Boar, I guess, sort of help myth bust around them, counter misinformation, and also cut down on your pork consumption, because that's probably the best way we can assure the future of Wild Boar in the UK is make ASF less of a reason to not have Wild Boar in, in the UK. Perfect. Thank you so much. It's always a sign of a good interview when you look up at the time when you think you've just started and it's already been half an hour and you're like, oh my goodness, where's the time gone? How are we possibly going to cover all the amazing topics that we want to chat about? So I hope we've done it justice, the topic. I loved it. Lots of stories about it. We have, I have more stories for days, as they say, when it comes to wild boar and the Forest of Dean and uh, even just talking about the culture in the Forest of Dean and how that's been influenced. Because I liked when Chantel was talking about people, well, when we were talking to Chantal about it as well, about the the fact that that was one of the first things that people say to you when you're new to the area. And it is said in a way that it is, I think there's pride in it. And you can tell what the local rugby club, you know, their logo is a wild boar. So I think there is a lot of pride about being the bastion of wild boar. So yes, there are people that are being rewilded by it and that's maybe changing their human habits to, to fit in with the wild boar's habits. That's fine. But actually... It's developing and moving culture in a direction that I think is really healthy. Absolutely. It really, in Chantal's book, she talks about this concept, which I think George Monbiot first referenced of ecological boredom. This idea that there's nothing of any kind of challenge to us in our natural environment. And I think that the wild boards do a great job of challenging that boredom. And that's something that we should be celebrating the forest as an opportunity to have that experience of crunching through the undergrowth. I'm not sure what that sound absolutely represents. I challenge anyone's heart to not give out at two o'clock in the morning as you're tromping through your four miles that you're trying to do and, and suddenly this you know, large wild boar comes out of the undergrowth in front of you, sees you, you see it, and then it runs off and yeah, it gives, gives the old ticker a bit of a scare, I've got to say. Yeah, and they're not to be underestimated in size. A male wild boar, I think from what I can recall, that the wild boar can grow to up to about a, almost a metre tall and by about a metre and a half long. So they are absolutely impressive animals to come across and rightly so should generate that feeling of fear, really. We know we should be respectful and fearful of some wild animals that are in our vicinity. Yeah, and I think the way up to something like 100 kilograms. So when you've got something that's almost a metre high, 100 kilograms coming out of the brush looking at you with tusks. Fair one. I can understand why some people may choose to avoid certain areas. But like I say, all I can say is we never really had an issue apart from that one experience of invading their personal space. <laughs> I was really struck by Chantal's vision at the end of the podcast of a UK in which wobble part of every forest landscape. And part of me thinks, of course, why not? We know they have a fantastic role with the ecosystem. We know they present minimal problems to human residents. So then I think, well, what's, what's going to stop us getting to that vision? What, or what do we need to get there? I've got to say, with Chantal on the pessimistic side of life, having spent a lot of time around farmers and completely understandable because no, we know the impact a wild boar within a couple of nights can have to a field so the farmers are not only incentivized because it's pretty delicious <laughs> but also incentivized because it's actually affecting their livelihood to manage them to a point where they won't cause damage to the fence lines or to the land that they own and because we're such a heavily fielded country I'm just pessimistic and all echo all the things that Chantel said in terms of its likelihood to spread. 
And then it goes back to the opportunity of where are we going to find the wild spaces in the UK in which we can allow these animals to live alongside us and create that feeling of being in an African safari and not knowing when the lion's going to come around the corner. Yeah, I don't know. And then the conversation, I think this is a real rewilding Britain conversation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because could you imagine telling our local farmers that we're going to import 10 wild boars to the 80 acres here, five of them, doesn't matter, on the full knowledge that they will break out and then they will start spreading. And it would be a, a, a challenge to our community engagement, shall we say. And of course, 80 acres, I'm, I'm, I'm being flippant, that's not large enough for it. So it's going to have to be projects of thousands of acres before it even becomes, a, I think, a serious conversation, sadly, because of all the amazing... I was getting excited when Chantel was talking about the roles they play and all the good things that they do. It's like, this is a no-brainer, let's do it. And I would love to see them around, but I can understand fully why other people may not be as excited by the idea. And of course, the proxy for most rewilding projects are pigs, and the Tamworth pigs do have connections to the wild boar. And actually, from reading Chantal's book, I've learned that a lot of wild boar do still have domesticated genetics within them. So there's kind of crossover between the two. But it just doesn't feel the same, does it, having a Tamworth pig wandering around as it does a wild boar in terms of that rewilding us effect? Having never owned a pig in my life and never spent time with them, I'm going to reserve my judgment. I think that that may be a good solution for what we require. It may not be a 100% solution, but actually it still might feel quite fun and exciting to be going through the land and then come up against Bertie doing his own thing. To be fair, the one a lot of people say the first thing we should be doing is getting a pig and Tom has been very excited by the concept. And, and, you know, the, the world ball I see you've created to have are excellent, but probably do, are not quite a substitute for Bertie. Uh, Bertie's going to be brilliant when he's here. Right, I think we've had enough reflecting on that. A final plug for anyone contemplating whether or not to read Chantal's book. It's probably been my favourite so far of all the nature-based books that I've read and there's so much more she covers that we weren't able to address within the podcast interview around boar's relationship with more urban spaces and kind of the process of hunting the boar and lots of other debates that are included within the book so I'd really recommend getting a copy and immersing yourself in the life of the wild boar. Perfect. Probably should end the podcast now, shouldn't we? Let's do that. <laughs>